This morning I have the uh, immense privilege of introducing a brand new sermon series that we're going to be stepping through for the next several weeks on the book of Galatians. And I don't think it's going to be an exaggeration to say that this might be one of the most important sermon series that we could ever dive into. I think it's somewhat of a uh, misnomer perhaps to say, as preachers like to say, that this is the most important sermon ever. (laughs) But indeed, I think some of the concepts, some of the truths, and some of the doctrines that come out of the book of Galatians are some of the most important in all of the Christian life. I say that this is an important sermon series, not because of anything I have to say. Indeed, it's only because of what God's word says. And in fact, I even hasten to say that if you get the book of Galatians wrong, you are likely going to get the rest of the Christian life wrong as well. Because what is talked about here is some of the most important truths that Paul ever put pen to paper. Like it's... Doctrinal or theological cousin, the book of Romans, Paul's letter here to the Galatians has been very revered and beloved. It's one of the most favorite books of the Bible for many believers and has been for centuries. Unlike Romans, though, if you want to draw a distinction between them, Galatians is not exactly a letter that's known for being uh, legally precise. And, And what I mean by that is just that Romans... If you read Romans, it almost reads like a lawyer, sort of giving his argument, making his case. It is meticulous, it is meditated, and it is exact. Whereas Galatians, if you read it, it's very raw, it's very unvarnished, if you will, and it's very unapologetic. It's filled with some of the most abrupt and indeed sometimes abrasive language that you will ever find in the New Testament. And I think a good way to picture this is if Romans is like, Paul's, is like Paul acting like a surgeon with a scalpel in his hand. Galatians is like Paul with a butcher with a cleaver in his hand. That's sort of the picture. It's forceful. It's strong. And it's to the point. The message of both letters is the same. Both Galatians and Romans beautifully, marvelously uphold the glorious doctrine of the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Both of them present an amazing, uh, amazing message of that wonderful gospel truth. But the approach is quite different. And I think it's because the circumstances were different. Galatians' circumstances behind this letter are very vastly different than what uh, sort of backdrops the book of Romans. But perhaps to your surprise, I don't want to spend a lot of time during this introductory sermon to outline or detail all of those historical circumstances. Actually, uh, I want to save those for next week. Because as Paul tells his sort of life story, beginning in verse 11 down through almost halfway through chapter number 2, that will make more sense to understand the, in the, the very uh, exact historical context of where this book comes from. Not because I don't think context is and crucial, it is. But Paul gets right to the point. And I think so should we. Paul is direct and blunt with the matter at hand. Notice Again, what he says. Paul, an apostle, 
Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul wastes zero time getting to the, the exact matter that's triggering this letter to be written in the first place. He doesn't hem-haw around. He doesn't spend a lot of precious time applauding this church for good things that they were doing, for th- ways in which they are growing. He doesn't spend hardly any time patting them on the back. Instead, what does he do? He just rips the band-aid right off. I am kind of baffled, Paul says, that you are so quick to change your mind about God and his gospel, the one that I've been preaching to you. You should know that this kind of sets the tone for Paul throughout the rest of this letter. It's quick, it's blunt, it's to the point. He doesn't sort of mince words. He doesn't uh, want to have his message sort of confused or nuanced in a certain way. It's almost like the exact opposite of Philippians. Philippians is a, is a letter of, of Paul thanking and encouraging. And he's coming around them with just warm language. The language here is cold and to the point. But it's also glorious. Because he's trying to, again, reveal but also uphold and expose the way in which they have missed the gospel. And the way in which they should understand the gospel. You almost get the sense, as Paul opens this letter, barely out of his greeting. And he's already ripping the band-aid off. That you almost get the sense that Paul doesn't feel as though he has any time to lose. He doesn't have any time to spare. I got to get to the point. I got to get my message out. I can't spend any time in formalities or pleasantries. I hope you're doing well, but I have a more important thing to get to. He has one objective. And he makes that objective clear again right from the get-go. This opening of Galatians is in many ways similar to other letters that Paul wrote. It's actually very familiar. Where he has, this, he has a very familiar pattern. He states his authority as an apostle. He mentions some of his partners in ministry. These brothers that are with him. He also mentions the church that he's addressing. If you look at all of his letters, it almost seems formulaic. And in fact, the words that you find in verse number 3 can be found in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Almost exactly. In fact, in all of them verbatim, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what makes this salutation so much different and actually so important? Well, actually, it's because it's, even though it has familiar elements, it's, it's truly one of a kind. Because again, notice verse 1. Paul An apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Here and nowhere else, Paul explains, he takes time not only to defend, but also to definitively explain where his authority as an apostle came from. 
Instead of just leaving it as it is and saying, I am an apostle, so you better listen to what I have to say, which is indeed what he could do. He could play that apostle card. Instead, what he's doing is he's explaining where that apostolic authority came from. It doesn't come from man. It didn't come through any human agency. I didn't get an apostolic certificate from a board of directors or some established human committee of peers. Paul is stating quite authoritatively that his authority as an apostle, as a representative and messenger of Jesus Christ, was given to him by none other than Jesus Christ himself. As he says, I didn't get it from men, I didn't get it through man, but I got it through Jesus and God the Father. He's of course alluding to what he's going to spend more time getting into more depth later in just a few verses. He's alluding to that moment where on the Damascus road he's greeted and snatched out of sin by none other than the risen Lord himself from Acts chapter 9. You could read about that moment when he, on his way to persecute more believers, he is rescued out of rebellion and sin and darkness by Jesus himself. The risen Lord gives him this commission. He tells that story multiple times here and in the book of Acts, and he talks about the fact that he's given this commission to preach the gospel. So in a flash, in two verses, he has totally stymied and silenced any of the other arguments that were uh, going around in those days against his authority as an apostle. This Is the terrorist Paul? This is the guy, Saul, who was making such havoc in the church. What business does he have to tell us about what the gospel is, about who Jesus is? And he tells them, you know where my authority comes from? It comes from Jesus. It comes from God himself. He's not merely a man with a made-up message. He's an apostle. A chosen representative of Jesus himself, given this divinely appointed calling to preach a divinely appointed message. In no other letter will you find Paul doing this in the opening verses. But he's doing it right away. He's establishing a baseline, a foundation that all of the rest that I have to say doesn't just come from my head. It doesn't just come from my imagination or anything like that. It comes from God himself, which is important considering what we're going to get into. Because on top of clarifying his authority, the other key difference in all of the other salutations and greetings of all the other letters that Paul wrote, Galatians is unique. Because he explains the gospel right in the greeting. Did you notice that? Look at verse 3. Verse, end of verse 2 to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we've already noted, verse number 3 is repeated several times throughout several of Paul's letters. But what you will never find in all of those other letters is Paul taking the time to explain what that gospel is while he's still writing the greeting. He's barely finished. The ink is still wet on writing dear sirs and he's already preaching. He's already getting to the point. He's already telling them what his focus is and where his attention is on. Because the gospel really is verse number three. 
If you want the gospel to be put in one sentence, it's verse 3. It's grace and peace that comes to us from God the Father through God the Son. That's the gospel. That's why he mentions it in all of his letters. He's beginning with the gospel. He's explaining the gospel in all of his letters. But what he does here is he provides even more explanation of what the gospel is here in this letter itself. He's declaring precisely what makes the gospel the gospel while he's still writing the salutation. As he says here, as he details how Christ himself surrendered himself to be punished for the sins of the world in order to rescue sinners from this world of sin. Again, verse 4. Who, referring to Jesus, gave himself For our sins to deliver, to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. That's what the gospel's about. That's what this whole thing is trying to detail. That's what it's all concerned about. The gospel is entirely a message about how God has laid down his own life. Through the person and work of Jesus, and he laid his life down on the altar where all of our horrible, atrocious, awful sins were being paid for. As we talked about in the book of Hebrews, the gospel tells us about how our high priest became our sacrifice at the same time. And we entered into the holy of holies, that most holy place of the cross. That's where Jesus, our priest, lays his own life down and sheds his own blood to cover not just some sins, but all sins of every sinner. That's what Paul has just explained in a few short words. That this is what the gospel is all about. Grace and peace is coming to you. How? Why? Because he has surrendered himself to death for our sins according to the glorious will of the Father. And he did this to deliver, to rescue us, to set us free. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Not because we had done anything to merit this wonderful revelation of glory and grace. But only and precisely because God had willed it to be, as he says, according to the will of God and our Father. The gospel, you see. Is a program that has been initiated by God, that has been undertaken by God, and has been finished by God. All for the express purpose of rescuing a people for his own glory. That's what the gospel is about. God rescuing people out of sin and death and darkness, rescuing them from certain damnation and bringing them into a glorious new life in himself. And all of that is set in motion. All of that is set in motion according to God's perfect will and glory. And we should say amen to that. But why does Paul begin his letter that way? With so much gospel right at the beginning. Why does, he, why does he seemingly throw this like one-two punch of defending his authority. But also clearly describing what the gospel is. Well, we already read it. But verse 6 indicates that the gospel was in danger of being lost. Again, look at verse 6. I am astonished. 
I'm surprised, I'm stunned that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, here Paul is getting right to the matter at hand. He's not wasting time. He's not mincing words. He says, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words, so to speak, that you guys, you churches in Galatia, would so hastily be given over to something else other than what I have delivered to you. Be given over to some, quote-unquote, different gospel. Not that such a thing exists, as he says. There is no such thing as a different gospel or an alternative message. But the Galatians had been deceived into thinking that there was. They had been bamboozled, if you will, by a group of men known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers, of course, were this group of devoutly religious Jews who in those days were saying and proclaiming and they were actually preaching that, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, but that faith must also be connected with and coupled with an adherence to the law. That was their message. It was a mixing of grace and law as they promoted to churches that, yes, Jesus did something, but you have to do something else, something additional. True faith was not only a matter of belief in Jesus, it was actually a matter of obedience to Moses. They were still upholding the law of Moses and applying it and enforcing it on sinners to obey. And this is why, as we'll see, you can see these guys, these Judaizers, these very religious, legalistic Jews. They were always following on the heels of Paul's preaching and all of his ministry endeavors. And they were following him and confusing the churches with a message that you could summarize essentially as Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus, but also this. Fill in the blank. Most often you'll see it referred to as circumcision or obedience or works or keeping the law. You could fill in the blank. Yes, it's Jesus, but it's also this other thing too. That you have to do. That you have to pick up your weight and pick up the slack and make sure you're finishing. And make sure you are doing as well. They were adding extra qualifications To the message that Paul has just declared, which is grace and peace coming from God. And they were adding all of these extra stipulations by insisting that something else was needed. That was their logic. Something else was necessary in order for salvation to truly come and implant itself in the heart and minds of sinners. In order for sinners to truly have faith, they didn't have, it's not just about believing in Jesus and his work. It's this other thing too. It's this other action. It's this other discipline. See, what Jesus had done, as Paul has just declared here, and giving himself up to die for our sins, in their minds, apparently, it wasn't enough. 
Jesus delivering himself over for our sins for the express purpose of rescuing sinners out of their sin and darkness and damnation. That wasn't good enough. But notice, I think it's interesting that what is not mentioned, what's not mentioned, and of course purposefully so, what's not mentioned in Paul's brief summary that we just walked through of the gospel in verses 3 through 5, what's not mentioned is anything about man's involvement in pulling it off. Notice again, he declares the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Where is man in there other than providing the sin that makes this whole thing necessary? This is a program, again, as I said before, initiated by God, undertaken by God, and finished by God. And he lays it out there. The gospel is there for sinners to believe. The whole thing is God's doing. It is his program and prerogative and purpose that comes to us through God's person. The gospel is not... God and man working hand in hand. It's not Jesus and the sinner sort of doing a work in tandem. Your salvation is not a group project. Your justification, your right standing before God is not something that you or anyone else can pull off. The gospel is a message precisely all about what God and Christ has done, finished for sinners. That's it. There is no other gospel. As Paul proceeds to say, there is no different one. If you're preaching something contrary to that, you're preaching something that is a distortion of that gospel. He's very explicit about that. And in fact, in these four verses, verses 6 through 9, he mentions that word gospel some five times. And each time it's the word euangelion. The Greek word where we get evangelize or evangelization, which essentially just translates to good news or glad tidings. Anytime you see the word gospel, think good news, think glad tidings. There's a word in the Greek that wasn't always associated with the church, wasn't always associated with Jesus or spiritual manners per se. You can look at a ton of ancient manuscripts and texts where they include this word most often in the context of a victory having been won on the battlefield or when a new king has ascended to the throne and a messenger would enter the town square and say, listen, I have a gospel, I have glad tidings. The point that Paul is here stressing is the fact that the gospel, the true gospel, the Christian gospel, is specifically and precisely good news that is concerned about Christ. It's about Jesus. Which is just to say, I think the reason why Paul starts this letter this way, why he begins Galatians in this manner, and why he sounds so crotchety throughout the rest of this letter... Is because that articulation, that message of grace and peace from God was being silenced by, yes, indeed, the very damnable doctrines of these Judaizers. Their gospel, so to speak, 
as he says, was an entirely different one, which is just to say, to be clear, it's not a gospel at all in the slightest. As Paul says in verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who, want, who, want, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. They want to pervert it. And this is what they were doing. By insisting that extra stuff was necessary for true faith. Not just faith alone. Extra stuff was necessary for you to truly have faith. And to truly be justified before and in the eyes of God. All of that message was doing was just causing trouble. It was stirring up the churches. It was confusing. It was dousing them in confusion. So you see, these churches that Paul has just spent time with, ushering them into the glorious message of the gospel, all of these churches now, instead of being comforted by that good news, instead of being uh, solaced by that great message of grace and peace from and through Christ, as Paul says, now they're being disturbed. Now they're being confused by this perversion of the gospel known as Jesus plus something else. And this is why Paul is so unapologetic in his writing. Why he's so passionate in what he's talking about here in this letter. This is why everything sort of comes down to how you understand this particular book of the Bible. Why? Because as soon, as soon as we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel entirely. That's what Paul is here saying. That's what he is here declaring. And as soon as that good news is mixed or commingled with something else, anything else, everything good about this good news is forfeit. And indeed, as Paul continues to say, anyone who does that, anyone who tinkers with this gospel message for sinners, let him be accursed. And if you didn't get it, he says it twice. Verse 8. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. (laughs) Paul's not leaving any room for anyone to misunderstand what he is saying. The gospel is about this. It's God in Christ giving himself over to death for those who deserve to die. Why? In order to rescue them from death and damnation and sin. That's what the gospel is. And if anyone, as I love that he says this, if anyone, if even an angel from heaven comes and starts teaching you something else, let God damn that messenger to hell. That's his language. That's how strong it is. And he even includes himself in that. Did you notice that? Verse 8. Even if we, if we get off, if we start veering into something else, let me be accursed too, he says. This is strong, forceful language. And in fact, it gets even stronger. In chapter number 5. You could read verse 12. Uh, Paul's language gets even more unsettling where he refers to and suggests that these teachers of some other doctrine, it would be better if they just castrate themselves instead of preaching this message. Just go ahead and emasculate yourself. That would be more beneficial, Paul says. That's how serious the gospel is. 
That's how serious it is when we are declaring this wonderfully good news from God, about God, to those who need God. That's how important it is to get it right. Paul, you see, had zero patience for anyone who thought they had a right or thought they had the authority to to piddle with the gospel. And I would hasten to say that I think that we should have the same attitude. No matter how polished the message or how excellent the presentation, any message other than the message of Christ for you, Christ in your stead, Christ on your behalf, it's not good news. It's not. They can couch it a certain way. They can add all these certain things to it. They can make it sound really nice. They can make it sound really significant and spiritual. But unless it leaves you with this wonderful, amazing truth that Christ has been delivered up for you in your stead, it is not good news. It is not the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. It tells us what Christ has done for stinking sinners and scoundrels like you and like me. That's what it's about. It's, just, it's God's remedy for our gargantuan problem of sin. And you know what is so amazing about this? Is indeed, our problem of sin is so great that we can't get over it by just doing a few simple things. You see what this gospel does? It magnifies our problem while also exalting the solution. Our problem is so big, we can't just get over it by doing a certain number of disciplines, by just making ourselves better, by just adding a few things to our life. Now the gospel tells us that our problem is much bigger than that. Your problem is a lot bigger than just having a few things that you need to do a little bit better. A few disciplines that you need to shore up. A few habits that you need to add. Your problem is that you're dead in sin. And that you need someone to breathe new life into you. That's how big your problem is. And you need someone not only to do that, but you need someone to take your punishment off of you too. And who's done that? God in Christ. That's what the gospel is about. It's about this wonderful announcement that God, yes, indeed, as we talked about last week, the one who spoke everything into existence has come down as a man and taken the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve on himself for our sins. And he's taken it and thrown it away into the grave, leaving it behind when he resurrected from the dead. And now you and I can believe on that work and we are redeemed. We are raised to newness of life and we stand in the light of God the Father as justified. That's what the gospel is, my friends. We shouldn't even dare think for even a nanosecond that we can improve upon that. We can't improve upon that message. Anything, and indeed I do mean anything, that we add to the gospel nullifies the gospel right on the spot. 
And Paul is telling us we can be unapologetic in that resolve. We can be unapologetic with that message that this is what the good news is. My friends, there's nothing good about Jesus plus anything. It'll leave you ruined. It'll leave you miserable. It'll leave you with no hope and no peace. It will leave you in the gutter. And my friends, there is that message of Jesus plus anything and it's so prolific. It's not, it's not explicit about it. No one's going to come out and say, I believe Jesus plus something else. But it's in the message. The hope of eternal redemption and everlasting life. These are gifts of grace that can only be received when we repent and believe in what God has done. And what God has done is donate his own self in order to be the payment that our sins demanded. Therefore, every time we preach the good news, we are entering a town square much like those messengers in the olden times. And we say, I have a gospel. We don't have the authority to change it. We don't have the authority to tinker with it. We don't have the authority to fix or manipulate the message. The message is what it is. It's the message of what God in Christ has done for you on your behalf. The message that Paul is going to get to is just that. Over and over again throughout this letter, he's going to champion that there is no other gospel. There's no other way for you to enter into a right relationship, a right standing with God, other than this. Which leads me to ask, is that you this morning? Have you ever been confronted with this amazingly good news of the gospel? Have you ever heard of what Jesus has done for your soul? If you haven't, my friends, today is the day of salvation for you. And indeed, if you would say, I am saved, this is a message that ought to realign and reorient our hearts to who is truly doing the work in our spiritual lives. It's not us. It's the Spirit of God working in us through the Word of God. My friends, there is no other gospel. It's only what God has done. Let us pray.